Section 8 of Luke Aru. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tracy Duckett. Lou Garou by Eden Philpotts. John and Jane. A negro lay at full length upon the little wharf of Kingstown, St. Vincent, in the West Indies. He chewed a sugar cane pensively and gazed with unspeculative eyes at the blue waters of the Caribbean. John Diggle was a full-blooded African and rather an exceptional specimen of his race, for he enjoyed the advantages of fine physical proportions and good looks also, judged from an Ethiopian standpoint, as he basked and blinked in the hot sunshine, his black skin shining with a rich chocolate gloss peeped from many a rent and rift in John's raiment, for he wore what he was pleased to consider his working clothes, albeit Mr. Diggle did extremely little work at the best and busiest of times. Now that emancipation has made all men free in the fertile islands of the western Indies, Quashie's labors are very limited. Two days of toil a week are sufficient to provide him with every necessity, and he has no ambition for luxuries. Give him a thatched cottage peeping from between the great tattered leaves of plantain trees, add thereto a patch of land where he may grow his sweet potatoes, throw in a coconut palm, sufficient sugar cane, and a wife to cherish or thrash, according to his humor, and your negro asks for nothing more. But John Diggle, while he owned most of these good things, and was the proud possessor of two mango trees into the bargain, yet lacked a helpmate, and while he sat upon the wharf and watched a shoal of flying fish flashing like little silver meteors in the bay as they fled and flew before greedy pursuers in sea and air, John sighed with the gravity of his reflections and shook his woolly head and set down his sugar-cane, for the sweetness had gone out of it that morning. Mr. Diggle was in love with the blackest, straightest, prettiest little negress in St. Vincent, but his dear one had two strings to her bow, and she harped with great success upon each to the extreme discomfort of the other. His present uncertainty first reduced John to despair, and then determined him to take definite action. He felt that when his mental condition became such that sugarcane no longer tasted sweet in the mouth, it was high time to make a move and press for a decided answer from Jane Smith. He had not proposed yet, excepting through the vague medium of great bunches of bananas or presents of land crabs and other delicacies nor had his rival made absolute offer of love so far as he knew, and now, while poor John lay sighing and whining to himself under the blazing sun, he was screwing his courage to the sticking point, and framing ardent sentences calculated to express the height and depth of his affection. He wished he could write a letter setting forth his sentiments, but the extent of Mr. Diggle's education did not embrace the possibility of such a performance. "'Specs I'll have to say it,' he thought." and that other nigger'll have to say it too. He don't know nothing about writing, thank the Lord. This reflection comforted John for a moment. Then another took its place. What if his rival had spoken? Of course he might do so at any moment. Mr. Diggle knew very little of love, except that it was a most unquieting, distracting condition. But he suspected that considerable delay in matters of the heart must be dangerous, and more especially when a tertium quid like Jeff Solomon's had taken up a strong position. Solomon's was a newcomer in St. Vincent, 
Nobody knew anything about him beyond the fact that he possessed more money than most of his kind and that he had a very hateful and superior way of treating his fellow men, but managed to make himself highly popular with the ladies. There was a strain of white blood in him, upon the possession of which he took unreasonable credit to himself and claimed relationship with some exalted putty-coloured people at Barbados, but the sole evidence of this lofty lineage in Mr. Solomon's appeared from the fact that, instead of being a mahogany-hued negro, he was a snuff-tinted one. He gave himself great airs and graces at all times, and had become pretty generally disliked by his own sex in consequence. Lastly, of him it may be noted that his impudent face had a strange deep scar upon it, the origin of which was a much-debated mystery among his acquaintances. So John Diggle, feeling that further delay must be useless, if not absolutely dangerous, rose up from his hard couch on the wharf, gave the remains of his sugar cane to a small boy who angled hard by, and then returned home to his cottage. The negro's preparations for his pending proposal were of a most elaborate nature. He rummaged out his Sunday clothes, polished up his best hat, a venerable white beaver of obsolete design, put on a sky-blue tie which his friends very rightly considered among the wonders of st vincent and finally got into a pair of boots articles which he cordially disliked and rarely wore but felt were that day demanded by the dignity of the occasion then taking a big walking-stick with a metal knob he started the admired of all beholders his acquaintances were proud to know mr diggle that afternoon Indeed, John's progress presently amounted to a sort of triumphal procession, for a dozen ragged black girls and boys marched proudly in front of him, and an inquisitive adult or two brought up the rear. The central figure felt highly gratified at the ample attention he was commanding. Even white men stopped and admired. He felt that he amounted to a pageant, and the idea gave him confidence. Jane would surely be bound to strike her colors before his blue tie. She might not care particularly for the man, but John quite failed to see how she could resist the clothes. All a negro's love of admiration and importance thrilled in Diggle's veins that afternoon. He felt that he was somebody, and his heart beat high with sanguine hope. He reflected, moreover, that a staunch ally already watched his interest in the camp of the enemy. Jane lived with her aunt, an ancient, much-married negress, who had survived three husbands, accumulated small worldly possessions from each in turn, and now spent a quiet Indian summer of life in peaceful widowhood and comfortable circumstances. Aunt Elvira knew men pretty thoroughly, and had rather a low opinion of them, taken as a sex, but she thought well of John Diggle. Him, probably in consideration of his extended property and two mango trees, she considered as an eligible, if not absolutely desirable, suitor for Jane, and she had secretly assured him that she was on his side and would exercise her influence. But very few ants, whether black, white, or any other color, have much authority or carry great weight with pretty young maids whose feet stand upon the exciting threshold of womanhood. Jane was a beauty. She had a strong will of her own, and a perfect belief in her judgment of male character. She proposed going her own way, wherever that might lead her, and a thousand widowed aunts would have made no difference to this determination. Mr. Diggle's black diamond lived inland, a mile or more out of Kingston, and presently, leaving his juvenile bodyguard in the rear at the outskirts of civilization, he proceeded to climb the hills that rose beyond. Noble hills they were, fringed and gemmed with palms, richly wooded to their topmost heights, crowned with clouds of pearl that hung in the deep blue sky above. 
Nature triumphed in savage verdure on their towering sides. Here glowed the fiery bells of the flamboyant. Here vast, weird cacti thrust upwards their thorny heads. Here tamarind, mango, lime, and palm struggled in luxuriant rivalry, linked and chained each to other with creeping tangles and twisted ropes of delicate foliage. Here the jagged boughs of frangipani broke the undergrowth and scented the air with sweet white blossoms. Here blazed the crimson spikes of the coral tree. John stood a while to rest by the shattered trunk of a dead giant, whose bleached lightning-smitten branches towered above the living woods. Beneath him, billow upon billow of tawny forest extended, rolling downwards to where emerald plains of sugarcane and arrowroot lay between the mountain above and the little town below while beyond the colony of red roofs and grey that glimmered under tropic sun there stretched away to the dim horizon a great and glorious sapphire sea gleaming with splashes of sunlight on tiny white sails dimmed at one point by tangles of wind-blown smoke from a departing steamship john diggle sat down in the heart of the hot woods watched the hummingbirds flickering on trembling wing before the flowers, noted the lizards that rustled to right and left, saw the air quivering over the hillside, and felt his recent hopeful emotions rapidly dying within him. There, alone in the lap of nature, John dimly suspected that he was but a small thing after all, and that even his white beaver and sky-blue tie might be taken in a wrong spirit and fail of success once he was almost tempted to relinquish the task for that day but he braced himself to the ordeal and allowing himself no further license started straightway for the habitation of his love two hundred yards from the cottage mr diggle met no less a person than jeff solomon's coming towards him this gentleman was also in holiday garb so john guessed and he appeared on good terms with himself and the world in general good afternoon to you massa diggle fine day sir very fine day sir answered john trying to look pleasanter than he felt you's plenty dress up massa diggle where's you gwine dis afternoon dat's my business i specs massa solomons all right sir all right i mean no fence i's sorry i spoke you's very pertinent nigger to ask where i's gwine explained mr diggle hotly i no ask you why you's gwine no sir answered the other with a cool most exasperating grin and you no ask me where i's come from cause you know where dat is good afternoon sir ha ha you's damn hard nigger sir answered john then he proceeded to the cottage of aunt elvira auntie sat on the floor in the living room she was plucking a fowl and smoking her little clay pipe where's missy smith inquired john abruptly without preamble de gal's in de garden me god massa diggle dat's beautiful sure enough and Aunt Elvira stopped her occupation and beamed with undisguised admiration upon Mr. Diggle. Yes, he admitted, mopping his shining forehead and giving the beaver a final polish. Yes, I's smart, ma'am. In de garden, I'll go right long. That's Solomon's fussin' boat somewhere, dar. No, he have gone, a most damn pertinent fellow, ma'am. Then the lover went out to meet his fate. Jane was sitting on a little wooden form under a palmetto in the garden. Her arms were folded, her head bent down, her eyes apparently fixed upon her ten black toes. She looked a bright and comely maiden, as negresses go, with big brown eyes and teeth her fair sisters must have much envied her. 
The girl was clad in a white cotton frock extending slightly below her knees, and her crisp hair, done up in careful curls, was hidden for the most part under a big white turban with ends that flowed behind. Good afternoon, Massa Diggle, she said, not looking up. Same to you, Missy, he answered gravely. She cast a sidelong glance at him, and his splendid attire spoke his errand. No negro ever dressed like that, excepting he meant some great business, save on Sundays. Shall I sit down long, would you, Jane? Yes, Massa Diggle. He shook her hand solemnly for about half a minute, then took off his hat, placed it by his side upon a red handkerchief, folded his hands over the great knob of his stick, and sat silently gazing at her. She endeavored to show indifference, and failed. You's great man this evening, Massa Diggle. I's come pon great business, Missy. Have you, Massa Diggle? Just so, and I wish you no call me Massa Diggle, but John instead. Then I call you John, Massa Diggle. Dar you goes again. They both laughed with the quaint, pathetic Negro cachination one must have heard to appreciate. Then John grew very much in earnest and spoke once more, this time to the point. Jane, I say just this to you. Did I love you? I love you ever so long since I first see you. And I got a house and other things, plenty comfortable for two folks. You have everything if you marry me, Jane. Does my Solomon's, he loved me too, said Jane. That's Solomon's damn pertinent nigger to love you, asserted John warmly. Him nothing on this island. Him not even proper colored gentleman. Him no nigger at all, declared Miss Smith. Him no colored person. Him nearly altogether white, Jim, ma'am. Shoo, him white. And John made a great pretense of being moved to uncontrollable laughter. Am dat boot on my foot white? Am de land crabs I bring you for present white? <laughs> Am de devil white? Solomon's am nothing, neither black nor white. I wonder you think of a person what neither black nor white, Jane. The girl did not answer, but an angry sulky look came over her face. She moved as far away from him as the scanty seat would allow and tore the edge of her apron peevishly. You's colored lady and I's colored jam man, and I loves you, began John again. Then she interrupted him. Why you speak disrespectful of my Solomons? What he done to you? I no care nothing for Mar Solomons, explained John with extreme unconcern. Only I surprise you like him. I... I loves him, said Jane, looking away. Loves him? Yes, I does, and I does, and I's gwan marry him right and proper at the chapel. Dar. There was a long pause, then John spoke again with a hollow voice indicative of shock and dismay. I's too sorry to be acquainted with is, Missy Jane, quite too sorry, cause I thought that you loved me a little piece. You no love me tall, then? No, I no love you tall. Me, God, that's terrible bad news, Missy Jane. She did not answer, and after a further brief period of silence, John proceeded. Suppose there was no Massa Solomon's, then? But there is. Suppose him not on this island, then? But him am. 
John sighed and whined, and Jane sighed too, and they went in mournfully together to Aunt Elvira. She saw instantly the turn which matters had taken, provided some rum and water for John before he started upon his return journey, and upbraided Jane openly with her folly and obstinate behavior. "'You's quite too big fool of a gal,' declared her aunt. Whereupon Jane grew very sulky, and said she much doubted John's love. Then she returned to the little garden alone, and hid herself in a patch of pigeon peas and wept. John, meantime, consumed his rum and water, shook Aunt Elvira by the hand, remarked that he neither knew nor cared what would become of him, hinted that the life-blood of, quote-unquote, Mar Solomon's, would flow pretty freely before long, and then departed. A very woe-begone face it was that peeped out between the white beaver and sky-blue tie as Mr. Diggle returned to his home. Life thenceforth, he told himself, must be a hollow farce. He thought first of killing his rival, then himself, then both. It struck him that if he took his own life and left his mango-trees and other goods to Jane, she would at least keep his grave tidy and perhaps shed a tear there from time to time when she had leisure. But then a horrid vision of Solomon's and the beaver hat and sky-blue tie filled John with a stern determination not to leave the world unaccompanied. Finally, he decided to live on, at any rate for the present, and watch events. So he took off his boots and hung them around his neck, for the road was stony and rough and bad for shoe leather. Then he walked home, full of gloomy reflections. John Diggle was a model Christian on Sundays, but at other times he leaned in secret towards an old African cult of Obia. It was rather more comprehensive than Christianity, for Obia embraced religion, psychic, law, and various nameless arts, whereas the minister of the church had no talent save in his own line. It occurred to John that the Obi man could possibly provide a little bottle of poison at a low cost, or suggest some other definite means of dealing with Massa Solomons. He, too, might furnish a cunning dose of, quote-unquote, love herbs for, quote-unquote, Missy Smith. There were, in fact, great possibilities to be hoped for from a visit to the Obi man but Mr. Diggle's good sense told him that it was useless to approach his Christian pastor with these schemes. So two days later, having debated with himself and put the question from every point of view, John started to the residence of the priest of Obi. It lay hidden in the fringes of the forest where, separated from the wild lands above by a lofty bamboo hedge, the sugar cane grew. John pottered along, bearing a few big green coconuts and a fine head of bananas. These were presents for the mystic. As he turned the corner of a winding road, Mr. Diggle saw a white frock fluttering ahead, a slim straight back, a sprightly figure, and a snowy turban. These things made his heart thump briskly, for he knew to whom they belonged. It was Jane, apparently upon the same errand as himself. She started at seeing him, showed some emotion, and an inclination to run away into the woods like a wild thing, but John affected not to notice her concern. He shook hands in his usual ponderous, prolonged fashion, then asked her whither she was going. "'You no love me, Missy Jane. But you no hate me, eh? We's friends, Missy Jane.' "'Yes, we's friends, Massa John.' But I's very sick in my heart, and I's gwine to Obi to know the reason why she answered and i's gwine to obi too being very sick in my heart like you missy jane this was not strictly the aim of john's pilgrimage but he felt justified in thus explaining it 
They walked along in silence for half a mile, each occupied with private thoughts. Then, over the hill from the other side of the island, came a weary, footsore negress with a crying baby at her breast, a little boy limping before her, and a tiny girl wailing at her side. The entire party appeared extremely wretched, fatigued, and unhappy. "'Who's these?' inquired John, but Jane knew not. They all drew up, and the worn-out mother asked them for pity's sake to give her little ones a morsel to eat. They were very hungry and miserable, and had been trudging through the hot sun for hours. John, a kind-hearted man enough, readily sacrificed one of his green coconuts and broke off a dozen fat yellow bananas from the bunch he was carrying. "'Where are you come from?' asked Jane, after the woman had drunk from the coconut and sat down by the roadside with a great sigh of relief, while her offspring wallowed in the fruit. "'From Bequia,' she answered." Dar was a sailing boat gwine round to Colinari River on this island, and they took me long. As terrible sad woman, massa, cause my husband's run way and took all the money I save and left me with free babies. And now they say he's come long to St. Vincent. The deserted wife's experiences were an old story, and neither John nor Jane showed any particular wonder or concern at her tale. They only thought she must be a particularly sanguine sort of woman to start in pursuit of her lord. What am name? asked Mr. Diggle casually. Wilson, him true name, sir, but him lots of names. I know em if I see em. Him gemmen, with big scratch down the side the nose where other gemmen hit em with a chopper. John and Jane looked at one another. What if him go by the name of Solomon's, ma'am? Solomon's my name, sir, for I was married. Then I knows em, declared John, and this lady she know em too. Go you straight long down to Kingston and go to the police station and ask for Massa Jeff Solomons. Then go to the governor's house and see the governor's clerk, Jim, em, and say who you is. If you doin' well, he take me back, perhaps. Then I make no fuss, said the poor wife. After which, with a look of hope rekindled and grateful expressions not a few, she got her family into marching order and set off once more, leaving John and Jane alone. The girl showed a stoic indifference to this tremendous chance discovery which greatly mystified Mr. Diggle. He expected she would express her sorrow in the usual feminine way, but she did not. "'Terrible sad for you, Missy Jane,' he said at length. "'Might been sadder,' she said. "'How dat?' Might been married me and him fore that lady came long. How then? John was bound to admit the concentrated horrors of such a position. And now, Jane, what do we do now? They stood in a lonely place together, and John, dropping his present to the Obi man, turned boldly round, put his hands upon Jane's shoulders, and looked into her eyes. And now, Jane? He come to borrow money of me this morning, she said. You no borrow my little money away from me, John. I gib you money, Jane, and a house and mango trees, and I loves you plenty more than ever. Gimme coconut, John. I's thirsty, and I's awful queer. They sat down together and ate and drank until a certain gift designed for the Obi man was much diminished. Use mine now, Jane. Say use mine. I wants you to say use mine. Yes, John, I guess I's yours now. End of section eight. Recording by Tracy Duckett.